Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 249 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Southwest Utah landscape photographer and biologist, Nathan St. Andre. Nathan and I have been chatting on social media for many years, and I've found him to be a very nice guy with a lot of insight. He happens to make the bulk of his living selling prints at art shows, and so we focused a lot of our attention on this, diving deep into his motivations and how it impacts his photography. Before we get rolling, I wanted to quickly thank a few people. First, thank you to Ella and Nap Hudson for their generous support on Patreon and for being so thoughtfully engaged as listeners. I appreciate you. Second, thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters for keeping the podcast going. As you know all too well, 2021 was quite the roller coaster. Your financial support of the podcast really helped. Cheers. If you too would like to support the show, hit pause and head over to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Nathan St. Andre, it's great to have you on the podcast, man. Yeah, it's like like I was saying earlier, it's talking to a celebrity now. No, stop. That's that's not true. You're 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 a man who's been recognized all all over the world now. So it's it's definitely at this point. It's it's a true statement. You you're at the point now where you're you're recognized by voice alone. So you you've reached a level of celebrity status in the photography world. So I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna hold that there for a while, and maybe when we meet in person one of these days, I'll I'll knock you off that celebrity status point. Brilliant. Well, we almost did meet a couple of years ago. I remember you invited me to to go photograph a couple scenes with you in Utah. And oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I can't remember what happened. I think I was busy or too yeah, scared of the cold or something. Probably. I'm scared of the cold too now. So it's awful. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, for people that are not familiar with you and your photography, uh, tell us a little bit about Nathan Saint Andre. Yes, I live in southwestern Utah, so St. George, Utah. I live 40 minutes from the mouth of Zion, so that's where I reside. Uh, about me, I've been on and off in southern Utah for about 10 years. I did my undergraduate here, and I did I did minor in photography, but I, I'm a, a biology by trade. Um, I've worked on and off throughout the region, working with rare and endangered fish, uh, not rare and endangered fish, um, toads, snakes, kind of that whole genre of things. Uh, so I've, I've had a few interesting opportunities to interact with that. Uh, so that that's kind of outside of my photography side of things. My photography came about because in college I wanted to start a project. So I started a hiking blog, which we can talk about and the ramifications that have come of that. And uh, as I was doing the hiking blog, I wanted better photos and which spiraled downhill from there. And, and now I'm where I'm at now. And I do photography, as I was saying, like three quarter time. So it's not full time, but it's definitely not part time. And I, I can I can call myself uh, probably professional, but I mostly um, fall in probably that semi-professional world. Don't you, don't you find the, the definition of professional is kind of silly? Um, sometimes I, I've seen some photographers say, you know, if you've been making your living a hundred percent off of it, then you can call yourself professional. If you're not doing that, you're not uh, professional. But 
I, I don't know. I paid for Christmas this year with my, my photography. So does that count? Like, <laughs> It is funny though. Like, why is it that we always equate it to income, right? Like I, I know lots and lots and lots of people who make almost no money on photography who are thousands and thousands of times better photographers than almost every quote unquote full-time I make my living off photography type people. Yeah, I don't know. That was that was his um, opinion. And once upon a time, I I may have thought that that was a value. And and now as I've gotten older, I'm like, okay, whatever. (laughs) That's your world. I'll I'll stick to mine and I'll do my art shows and I will live in that and we'll do okay. And you're um, you're married and have like 72 kids, right? Yes, I'm married and 72 kids. I'm from Utah. (laughs) So I am married. (laughs) Uh, I have three kids. and so they they keep me busy. But, you know, oddly enough, they if you go through my portfolio, I can point out to dozens and dozens of photos where the kids were on a backpack with me. Like I have a picture of me holding a child in a slot canyon that's barely wider than me. So like my kids have been all sorts of places and I've dragged them uh you know wild locations and i i've only had one near-death experience with them so um so far it's been good you know i'm glad you said that because that makes me feel so much better about how i've raised my son in in that i've also had some near-death experiences with him and it's good to hear i'm not the only one (laughs) yeah we we were we were in canyonlands i was doing photography and 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 i the photo is actually on my calendar this year and we were standing there and then my children's hair started standing up. Oh, and so yes. they're little girls, so they have, you know, long hair. And I I apparently was the only person on the ridge who recognized what was going on because when I started shouting at the people next to us, they were like, This is the weirdest thing. Why is her hair standing up? I'm like, guys, there's lightning trying to strike us right now. Let's please get out of here. And then the photographers down the way said their tripods were buzzing with electricity. Oh, yeah. And that that was hands down the closest I've ever come to killing myself and my three children, two children at that moment, the other one was in the car. Uh, and so I hope to never repeat that. How does your wife feel about that? <laughs> um, you know what? She is a good sport. <laughs> uh, my wife is surprisingly supportive of what I do. Oh, well, again, that, that's that's good. That's I think that's really important. Yes. Well, because- I, I'm gone too much for her to, to if she hated it, um, we would be in, in much rockier situation. Yeah, yeah. There's a big chunk of our conversation that I want to have that I think is going to re- revolve around art fairs. And yeah. it's funny, I've, I have a lot of listeners in Europe, and every time somebody's on the podcast who talks about art fairs, they're like, what the heck is an art fair? Because apparently that's not even a thing. Oh, really? The rest of the world. So why don't you start off by just, really quickly telling people what the heck an art fair is. Oh, okay. So art art festivals and art fairs kind of come in a whole uh, range and variety of, of type of events. Um, from your most basic level, you have towns who just throw on festivals of some kind. And so one of my favorites out here in Kanab, and it's a balloon festival, and they essentially bring in a bunch of hot air balloons and a bunch of vendors. And, and so they have me as a photographer there, but you can get... It's almost like a carnival, but with a little bit more interesting things to buy. Um, and so you have from the most basic level, things like that. And then as it gets more advanced, you go into the actual art festivals or the the, the art markets where you actually have um, 
a huge diversity of artists from sculptors, painters, photographers, jewelry artists, There's guys who, you know, do pearl photographer pearl uh, necklaces and they have the pearls growing on their at their booths at a time. And so you get uh, from, you know, art pieces that are from uh, just a few bucks to, to places like uh, earlier this fall, I, I did an art show with a lady who across from me, her cheapest thing there was $3,500 and went up to almost 10 grand for a single one of her pieces. And so you just get this huge diversity of shows um, that uh, what an art fair is. And so uh, if you ever come to Utah or anywhere out in the West, you'll bump into one of these shows probably on any given weekend. Um, Cause it, you know, lots and lots of places around the West do them. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's basically like a farmer's market for artists. Yes. Um, yes. And, and, and probably in, in the art market world, uh, they definitely probably consider us farmers, market photographers and artists. So uh, there's lots of us who do this for a living. But when it comes to like galleries and things like that, we're on like the the trash uh, of what the, the high end art market probably considers us. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because I've you know, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of people in the space and I, I could say there's probably people from that whole spectrum just in photography in terms of people who probably sell prints for, you know, $50 to $100 to $150 to people who are trying to sell three, four or $5,000 prints at our market. So mm-hmm. I think it, it varies widely. Yep. So I'm on the, the, uh middle spectrum i'm not the most expensive artist who goes to the shows but i'm not the cheapest anymore either so i i find myself i'm kind of in the middle spectrum of of art uh sellers at those shows gotcha well let's let's get a little bit deeper into art fairs i'm i'm really curious how you decide uh what photos to make and later sell at art fairs oh uh this is actually a bigger uh topic i think to begin with uh, so what photos I decide to make and which photos I decide to sell are two totally different things. Yeah, um, I yeah so the, I make whatever I want to make, uh, what I sell is, is a whole lot of testing at art shows. And then I, I kind of have two tiers in which I do. I have small paper prints that I print off and I, those aren't a part of any edition at all. And those photos are my testing ground. So I have at any given time five or six photos that I print and I'll print off just one or two and I chuck them out there and see how long it takes for anybody to to buy them. And I pay attention to whether they even stop and look at them. And and so my photos that I decide to sell um, all get tested almost always in these small paper prints. Um, but as for what makes it there. Uh, so and I've listened to your podcast for a long time now, and there's always this debate between iconic versus not iconic and somewhere in between. And what sells falls on a spectrum. And so I will photograph iconic locations only if I'm the first person there. If I get there and there's 10 people there, I'll walk away. But, <laughs> but I try to find something that I can get from that area. And then if, if it comes out and turns out to be decent, it'll make it to the art booth. And if it sells decently in the art booth, I will graduate that to the actual big metal prints that actually go on the walls. And so uh, just because it's iconic doesn't mean it will sell. And it is also an aspect of what I do. Um, there's a kind of a regional basis to what I do. I don't sell my California photos particularly well in my art booth because I live in southern Utah. 
and the guys I talked to in California don't sell their Utah photos that they've taken with me in California. And so uh, I have a very Southern Utah art booth and I have been starting to introduce and sneak in California photos to see if they sell. And so I'm kind of, so that's how I do things. I start off everything as a small paper print and I've been burned when I haven't and I test it that way. And that's kind of my my methodology. So there's a little bit of, of method to my madness. Well, let's let's dive a little bit deeper into the madness a little bit okay. here. So, so you know, I'm, I'm guessing that how something sells or a, a style of image, how that sells, um, can change what you choose to photograph as a photographer in some ways. Because over the years, you probably have gathered enough data to know, like, I'm pretty sure this type of scene will do well in my in my booth, right? At least a little yeah, bit. I get some of that. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the, so, so for like example, Zion. I so I live 40 minutes from Zion, and I have ideas of photos that will do well in Zion, from Zion, and I have photos that won't do well. Essentially, anything from the Narrows, I assume, will do well. Surprisingly, though. I had a photo from the Narrows that almost never sells. And then I have uh, the the iconic spot there in, in Zion. You drive in, it's called the Watchman Overlook or the Watchman Bridge Shot. Yeah, Essentially, if you've ever seen a photo from Zion, it's the river that kind of curves out away and then the mountains there and it's lit up. That photo sells really well. And so you can kind of bump into this like chaos where you, you think that just because it's iconic, it will sell. But for whatever reason, it doesn't. Um, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> so there's there's a there's a whole slew of frustration with that. And and but you know I have lots of shots of Zion that I never sell. I never bothered to, to bring into the art show because um, they're obscure. I I go and photograph a lot of the obscure areas of, of Zion. There's there's a handful of arches that are just floating around like in the slot canyons. Or the times I've done technical routes in there, I never bring any of my slot canyon photos ever to art shows. They never sell. And so I, yeah, so choosing what, what will be in the art booth is, is challenging. Yeah. <clears throat> Have you found that being cognizant of your sales uh, with art fairs, has that changed your approach to photography at all? Um, it will, part of what it does is it, I start, um, like I, I, it makes me want to visit places like national parks because in my mind, I know national parks will sell. And so part of paying attention to the sales makes me want to go into those places. Um, but while I'm there, I, I, I don't necessarily go there to find iconic locations to sell. So I'm not much of a, of a tripod hole finder. Um, but because I know um, people like those things, I, it kind of drives me in. I don't know. Uh, say your question one more time and maybe I can answer that that better. <laughs> well, maybe a different way of asking it is uh, does being cognizant of what you think will sell in your art booth change what you photograph? You know, because in my experience, you know, like I'm just going to use this last fall for for a couple of examples. Like I knew of two very specific moments on my last fall color trip where I knew that if I nailed the photo, they would sell. But those are the only two moments that that happened. It didn't really change how excited I was for that, except for it was just like, I knew, like, boom, this is going to be awesome. 
But then I was also really excited about a lot of other scenes that I found that I knew would never sell. And I was really happy to photograph those too. But it kind of did change the level of excitement I had. So I'm just curious about oh, okay, okay. how it changes your approach to photography. It or used if it does to. at all. It used to. So okay. once upon a time, if I went out and I didn't get the shot and the, the moment was there and it just didn't quite happen, it would burn me up. And so I've had to overcome that. Uh, I think one of the things I, I emailed to you was having, you know, every opportunity is a, a chance to make money. Every photo shoots a chance to make money. Um, I once upon a time I hear this is to kind of gets to this idea. I went to the, an arch out here, super famous in the photography community. It's essentially no one knows about it. I got there and it cost me a, a fair chunk of money to get out there. And I didn't get the shot I wanted and it burned for the two and a half hours drive home. And so Having that idea where you have a shot that you know you want to get and you know it will sell and then you don't get it, like I had to separate myself from that mindset because it tore me apart for about a year and a half where it was so hard to go out to places and feeling like I wasn't getting the shot. And if I couldn't get the shot, it would not sell. And if because it would not sell, it was a waste of time. That that was a huge, huge challenge for me to overcome. And my wife had to grump at me. So, you know, another kudo points to her because she was like, you have to step back and say, it was it fun or not? Because if it was fun, then it was worth your time, even if the photo won't sell. And so like having having that separation makes it so that I can go out there and get, like you were saying, those two shots where you knew they would sell and the rest of them wouldn't. And just being okay with that and just like, okay, cool. If they'll sell, cool. But I'm not going out here anymore to get those two shots. If they happen, that's what I'm shooting for. But right now, I'm just out here to photograph for myself. And so, yeah, that that has been a multi-year challenge to try to overcome. I, I went through a similar awakening, I guess you could call it. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I don't... So when I lived in Oregon, there was this very classic shot that Alex Noriega and Ryan Dyer have. I think they were actually standing next to each other when they got it, but <laughs> it's it's this shot of um Mount Mount Hood from this top of this mountain called Tom Dick and Harry Mountain. Okay. And they got it in this insane sunset light. Like it's never happens there. Um <laughs> Because if you if you live in Oregon, you know in the summertime, like there's no rain or clouds ever. So it's oh, like, really? Yeah, I've never just, I've never been to Oregon in the summer. I've only driven through like once. Yeah, so the conditions were just very rare. Oh, okay. Um, and I didn't really know that. <laughs> so I must have hiked to that spot, which is like a it's like a forty five minute drive from Portland, and probably like a six mile round trip hike. I think I did so, that like six or seven times. Yeah, never, never really got the shot that I was envisioning, although I got some really cool shots. But uh, if you're focused on trying to get that one shot that you think is going to sell or, you know, is a portfolio shot or whatever, I have personally have found that approach to photography to be incredibly frustrating. Yes, it is so frustrating where you feel like you constantly go out there and you're not getting what you want. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, I even still, I do a little bit of that. I do a lot of shots. I do a lot of just like afternoon trips because I live close by to interesting things. And so I just watch the conditions. I'm like, oh, it'll be work out. And, and then it doesn't. And yeah, if you live by that mindset still, uh, it just slowly eats away at you. And it just makes certain trips totally sucky. 
and you you just feel like oh that was like ten dollars in gas and and an evening spent and i should have just stayed home and yeah that that is an emotionally devastating existence if you're out there follow that and it's an interesting catch-22 right because that motivation and drive to get those specific photographs puts you out there, right? Like it forces you to leave the house and go to those places. But at the same time, it creates this mental trap where you feel obligated to quote unquote succeed. And then I think it puts you in this mindset where you're not open to all other types of inspiration or creativity because you're so focused on that one image or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I'm, so I have a question that might kind of get to the core of this. Ooh, okay. So if you if you didn't sell uh, your photography to make a living and to put food on the table, would you still be going to some of those locations to get some of those photos, or would you have a completely different focus, or have you even thought about that? Uh, I I have. I would still go out and do what I do, but I would do it the way I I use Instagram now. If you I don't know if you pay attention to my Instagram. Um, I barely pay attention to my own Instagram. Okay, good. That's perfectly (laughs) fine. Um, I would still go out and do the things I do, but I would treat it a lot more the way I do my Instagram. I've, I've this past year, I officially decided Instagram is not a portfolio site and I should never treat it like a portfolio site. And so my Instagram has turned into kind of me doing photography. And I feel like that's what I would have turned it more into uh, if I if I wasn't doing photography for a living and trying to actually make money for it. I would just simply phase into that existence. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely what I would do. But definitely the doing the art shows actually caused my photography to get better. Um, that was something that did come out of it because uh, money is a surprisingly good motivator. And it, and it's, uh, also it burns, it burns real bad when you do your first couple shows and you're, you're not up to snuff and you watch people walk by your booth and walk into someone else's. And then you talk to those guys and they made five or 10 grand that weekend and you made $50 and you're like, what did you do? Because I need to be like that. And that was a huge motivational, um, kick in the butt to really get my photography going in a lot of ways. And then being unemployed helps too a couple of times. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been there before. I get that. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's dive a little deeper into that. Cause I've been to a few of those art shows and I've made some observations and I've talked to a few people who have done them. And so I have some really, I don't know, opinions, I guess you could say, but okay. what I'll see if your struck- opinions are accurate. <laughs> right. So what has struck me is that the things that typically would bother us as photographers about other people's photographs, you know, like sharpness or chromatic aberrations or basically is it well processed? Like none of that kind of matters when it comes to art shows. Like people either like the photo because it connect they connect to it in some way, like they've been there before or it tells a story or they like the story or they like the, they like the artist and they like the way that the, the artist presented that thing or, or not like none of that. Yep. None of that stuff that we are constantly obsessing about actually plays into sales. Interestingly, I think, but I want to hear your perception. Um, it, yes. I don't no. mean none of it. I don't mean none of it, but I think uh, less than people would think it's a, it's a solid yes. No um some of it some of it's legit because as you get and find the better photographers who whittle that stuff out 
you'll notice their prices go up. And the photographers who are still overcoming a lot of those challenges, um, their prices usually are on the lower end. And and so and then <laughs> you you do see photos uh, from photographers. You're like, really, really, you have that here? And I have a few of those myself these days. Sure. And I, I have some of my older ones that I that still sell really well. Right. And so if they're it there. sells, it's like, well, oh well. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Um, I, I, I have stepped back from a couple of those photos just simply because it burns too much for me to even see it anymore. Um, uh, so does skill and quality matter at art shows? The answer is yes. It doesn't as matter as much as, as photographers care about. Um, so I listen, I follow a lot of what Mark Metternich does. Great photographer. He is a, he is a post-production or whatever, photo editing Nazi, right? He, he is all about the the extra five or ten percent details, and if he listens to this, uh, I hope he he takes it as as a hundred percent compliment, because that's his that's his mode of operation. He uh, that's how he partially makes a living is how to get a, another five or ten percent out of a photo. I have come to the conclusion ninety five percent of ph- photographers even can't tell the next five percent five to ten percent better quality out of their photos. And I know that because I can print uh, from a Canon 60, uh, 5D Mark IV, uh, and a, whatever, uh, an R5 now, and an 8x12, you can't tell the difference between any of them. There is literally no difference. The only time it really begins to matter is once you hit that 20 by 30 and bigger size. The, the, the Pretty much any and all small prints, you can't see those differences. And so once you get into the really, really big prints, all that stuff matters. But if you're a random layperson walking by, how sharp the trees look, they, they might feel something about that photo and say, huh, there is something a little bit better about these than the next guy down, but they wouldn't be able to put their finger on it. And it may not cause them to actually want to buy the photo more than the guy just over the over the way. Yeah. Um, and so that that is something that... Um, as I've gotten farther along, there's certain aspects about my post-production that I, I am less, uh, I don't care nearly as much as I used to, because what I ended up finding as I would spend all this time and effort and energy into it, I would spend a lot of time, energy, and effort into it, but it really wouldn't improve the quality of the photo that much, particularly if it only ever made it to an eight by 12. And I tried to do it more than that. And it never went beyond that. Like, okay, cool. I spent four hours on this photo and it never sold as an eight by 12. So now it's sitting around the back of my house and I, I enjoy the photo and I, I love the process of editing it. I really enjoy that. But at the end of the day, no, nope. Um, if the photo looks good and the buyer likes it, that's what matters. Right. Right. Well, for you. Yeah. Well, for me, and even right it, for me and even for the, the person who bought it. Right. Um, unless, unless they buy it from somebody else and then they, they get a poor quality image and then walk around and see a better photographer and then sure. they feel disappointed. Right. And so I've had people do that where they bought it from other people and walk over to my booth and been like, Oh, I should have waited a little longer. And, I, and so I've seen that happen. Um, but I think more often than not, um, that's mostly, uh, that, that quality versus, um, you know, whether it sells or not, uh, there is some truth to it, but it's not it's not so solidly set in stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think at the end of the day, it kind of, I mean, this may, might lead into my next area of questioning, which I think is super related to this, which is kind of this idea of, you know, you, you've said that you don't consider yourself a quote unquote photographer's photographer. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm so like, what does that mean? And I'm I'm guessing some of it has to do with what we we're just talking about, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, it does to do with some of that. So, 
Um, you've mentioned and other photographers have mentioned it that uh, they don't care so much what a random person on the street thinks about their photography, but it really matters to you a lot what your peers do. And I love it when somebody that I really like compliments my photos. It really does make me feel good inside. Um, but at the end of the day, did they pay? Did they buy a photo from me? Did <laughs> they put food on the table for your did kids? Did they put food on the table for the kids? <laughs> so like, I, I these days, I kind of consider you one of those um, photographers, photographer, because mostly because you're a voice in the community now. And you're and you've kind of moved past just like the general random Joe Schmo. You're you've you've been out here long enough. You've been doing this podcast long enough. And a lot of people have heard you. A lot of people have seen your stuff and a lot of photographers look up to you. And so because of that, you've kind of unintentionally, intentionally kind of became a photographer's photographer. I don't know if you see yourself as that, but you've kind of become that person over time. Uh, I don't have that. I'm not one of those people. And in the end of the day, the other photographers don't pay the bills. And so, you know, what do you prefer more? Your boss giving you a compliment or somebody in the community giving you a compliment? The community is nice, but your boss is really the one who's the one that pays your your, uh, paycheck. And so that's how I've kind of seen myself shift away from wanting to be the photographer's photographer because at the end of the day, none of them buy my photos. So why, why do I need their praise in order to do what I do? I love it when it happens, but it's not necessary for me to, to, you know, pay the bills and buy a next camera. It's interesting because I think so often, you know, when I think about the photographers that fall into that category of Mm -hmm. being a photographer's photographer, like, in my mind, mm-hmm. I think of like Eric Bennett and David Thompson and my yeah, friend and great Kane Engelbert, um, probably my friend Jimmy Gekas. Like, but what's interesting for a lot of those people, like one of two things are true. They either make no money on their photography and it's all about the love of the craft and like just trying to make their work as best as they possibly can from like an art perspective. Mm-hmm. Or they do make money off of other photographers by selling tutorials and workshops, right? Yep. Um, And so I think where you have the opposite is true. Like you don't make money off of other photographers, and but you do make money off of the layperson who probably isn't going to be as quote unquote discerning about really small things. You know, it's like I remember way back in the day I was talking to TJ Thorne and he was talking about his editing process and like he has like a PSB file and like 70 layers. And, you know, it's like he spends like four hours trying to get like this tiny little detail. Right. And I'm like the opposite of that. Right. Like I'm like, oh, it looks pretty good. I'm good. I'm done. You know, and then I'll show it to some of my friends and then they'll be like, dude, you missed this. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I did. <laughs> you know, so like, I don't know. It's interesting how how that motivation and focus changes over time too. Yeah. And it took me a while to, to kind of come to this realization. Um, so I've always kind of wanted to run workshops. So this is my, my big reveal. So I'm colorblind. Um, and so how do you convince yourself to go off and, and try to educate other photographers when at the end of the day, you don't know exactly what your photos look like to the rest of the world as well. And so I have certain aspects of, of what I do and I do it well. But if I try to teach that to other people, I'm like, oh, yeah, you got to fix those reds. I'm like, uh. <laughs> like <laughs> I probably missed that color. Um, and so uh, so 
I just I feel like in some part of it, it's probably it's my own personal limitations, but other part of it, yeah, I, I just I've had to step away from this um, belief that maybe one day I could become the photographer's photographer and be okay with what I am. I, I am a fairly decent photographer who sells fairly decent photos at fairly decent art shows, and I can call myself fairly decent. Uh, but it took a lot of of thinking about my own place in the in the art community to kind of come to that conclusion. Um, and really the last year helped 2020 was a good year for thought experimenting on my existence. So, yeah, I bet. Well, how, how else does the colorblindness affect your photography and maybe talk a little bit about what that even means? Cause as a, you know, I'm fairly well-educated, but like, I don't uh, totally uh, remember. Have what you that ever, means. have you ever taken a colorblind test? I have not. Are you, you implying that I'm colorblind? Nathan? No, but I'm just curious. Have you ever done one? Because most of my friends would probably say I'm colorblind. Uh, okay. <laughs> Based on my editing. No, I, I, um, no, I have not taken it. Well, I think I've taken like one of those online tests maybe. Okay. So if you you're know? ever feeling, um, if you, if you wanted to, you can go pull up in Chroma and in Chroma makes the colorblind glasses. Oh, okay. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. And so they make the, the colorblind glasses. And so I have a pair of those, um, and so being colorblind and then having those glasses has, has taught me a couple interesting things about my existence. Uh, first and foremost, I suck at photographing fall because of it. Oh. And yeah, so if you really go through my portfolio, um, you will almost never see maples. Mm-hmm. And so because uh, I'm colorblind, I don't focus on maple trees ever because unless they're at their peak color, they look brown to me. And so... I, I completely miss maples. Uh, Indian paintbrush, for example. I can see the red in the Indian paintbrush, but I'm the last person to notice it. And so if I'm going on a hike up in the mountains, my wife will be like, oh, Indian paintbrush. Oh, and people are like, oh, there's some Indian paintbrush over here. And Or I've been hiking along. I'm like, man, I feel like I haven't seen any of that. And they're like, guys, we've walked by like four fields of it now. And I just, I just don't notice it unless it's like right there in my face. And so it really dictates how I do a lot of um, photography. Um uh, kind of the trend right now in, in photography, I don't know if you've noticed this, a lot of uh, photographers are moving to that soft afterglow light, after sunset, after the, the main peak colors have kind of come and gone, and they really focus on those really soft pastel colors that, that move through the landscape, right, you know, right there, you know what I'm talking about? Um, so a lot of photographers have kind of shifted towards that existence, which is fine. Um, I suck at that because I can't see purple. I just, and so I never noticed purple. And so my wife calls me out on this. She's like, why don't you ever photograph purple? I'm like, because I don't normally see purple because the red in there is not bright enough for me to notice. And so I so have what, a tendency. So what is it? What does it look like to you? A blue. A blue. Okay. Yeah. So the, the so your your purple is you know your red and your red and blue is combined together and you get that purple spectrum. Uh, not all purples are created equal, and I don't notice the, the 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 purples that are kind of more on the blue side versus like the 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 real true purples which have a lot of red. And so because of that, I just I don't photograph those, and I photograph peak colors at sunset because that's the time I can see it the best, not right afterwards. And so it dictates how I do things, and it also means I have to trust my camera gear a lot. I have to trust that it is doing a decent job because I might not catch it in the end. I've gotten fairly good at it. I can I can BS my way through a lot of stuff and I can I can edit back to a memory. But this also means I can't actually photograph with my Enchroma glasses on because then it throws off my memory of the situation. Hmm. So I cannot I cannot photograph a sunset with the colorblind glasses on because then I don't remember what it looked like to my own eyes and then I can't go back and edit it. 
And then the Enchroma, since they, they shift light spectrum, so you're the colorblind people can see them better, uh, the digital light that comes off of computer screens, white shifts yellow. It doesn't... Yeah. It, it, yeah, so the, the it's just different types of light waves that come off of your computer screen versus what comes off the landscape. Um, I can't edit my photos wearing those things because it changes the, the actual colors on the computer. And so I have to edit um, with my own personal memory or it doesn't work. Gotcha. Yeah, so it kind of it forces me to, to, to have to photograph moments of peak brightness, peak color, peak this, or I just... Don't notice it. And so my life is a is a is a mystery world. Interesting. So in some ways, though, it changes the things that you notice, which could be an advantage and a disadvantage, right? Yes. I mean, have you noticed that there are any advantages to that as a photographer? I notice animals better than most people do. Okay. So so what that's... you're saying is you really should be a wildlife photographer. I should be. You know what? It's funny enough. As a person who's a biologist who literally has <laughs> spent hundreds of hours catching animals, I am a terrible, terrible wildlife photographer. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting better, but there is some there is some limitations to wildlife photography. Uh, the people who do wildlife photography seriously, A, sit out for a long time in the cold, sitting right. very silently, and uh, having some reach makes a world of difference. I just barely got a 100 to 500. And yeah. really in the world of wildlife photography, like you, you kind of need 200 and beyond. If you, if you don't have that, it's you're really have to be right up close and personal with these animals. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Wow. That's interesting. So it changes not only how you experience the landscape, how you edit the landscape, but I'm also guessing that what you might find interesting, other people don't find interesting. Um. Probably. Um, it's like I said, I usually have a tendency to photograph like peak sunset colors. So that's always interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what it does do is it, it can occasionally throw off my editing. Um, I, I just never notice pink. And so I occasionally get back photos. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. My wife is like, that's really pink. I'm like, oh, it is. Oh, wow. And, and so I, I occasionally get that. And surprisingly, people don't actually buy much, uh, many photos, at least in my experience, with pink in them. Yeah. Uh, those, that's at the color spectrum that people rarely buy. Um, and so those photos end up sitting around. Um, and so I, I, I have... That. I have gotten burned a couple times and we'll see if I, if I get burned again, I just printed off a half dome photo and I didn't notice the pink in it. And it's mostly because it's a low sunset. So you get a lot of that red wavelength spectrum kind of bouncing off and it's gray. And so gray picks up whatever color is hitting it. And it was a very pink sunset and I could see it's pink, which means it was a really pink sunset, which means that there was a lot of color cast on the rock and I didn't notice it. And so then the rock is kind of pink and I printed up a, a big metal of that one thinking I was all in the green. And then my wife was like, that's pretty pink. Dang it. <laughs> so you basically have to get somebody else to kind of help see that for you. Not all the time. Okay. Just just occasionally it sneaks up on me. My, I, I, I'm good in 95% of the time and it works 95% of the time. The other 5% burns me. Yeah. 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 So I don't. Well, I don't that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I see I see a, a weird world because it, it dawned on me this past year. I'm like, oh, everyone actually knows what my photos look like before I do. And I had never actually looked at my photos before with the, the colorblind glasses until this past year. And then I was like, oh, holy smokes, that Bryce photo has a lot of red in it. I thought it was mostly yellow. Big surprise. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Ha have you had any people in your art booth talk about how your photos look different? I mean, I'm, no. I mean... No. Nope. Okay. No. Nope. So it hasn't given you any advantage. Mm -mm. Okay. 
I'm just trying to find nope. the bright side, bro. <laughs> no, 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 no advantage, but it, it does make for an interesting conversation piece. Um, yeah. because people come and they're like, wow, those look really good. And they're like, yeah, you know, and every once in a while, I don't talk about it with every person. Cause I don't want to talk about how I'm colorblind constantly. Sure. Um, it's like, hi, I'm defected. How about you? Um, and so I oh. don't, I don't talk like that, but it does make for an interesting conversation point. Um, when it does come up. Um, although so yeah. if you sold in if you sold NFTs, you could totally use that as your, as your story to, yeah, I guess I could whore myself like that. That'd be good. Yeah, you could be like, I'm colorblind, and you should you should Pity buy me. my artwork because of that. People would love yeah. that, bro. <laughs> I could <laughs> I could you. sap story it. You could. I think you could. No, okay. Uh, no. Yeah. Nope. I, I've I've never. It. Pro- I don't know if it's ever sold me a photo, but it's definitely after the if the person's buying something and in the topic comes up, it becomes an interesting topic, conversation topic for them for them to talk about it. And that and that is 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 kind of fun. Every once in a while, as a as I I do a lot of local shows, people come back and they talk to me about people talking about my photo in their house. And so uh, I know people do and probably have talked about it with their friends and family. So it probably right. makes for an interesting conversation part for the customer for sure. Yeah, I mean, I I was saying that half jokingly. I mean, I, I think you shouldn't totally discount that as as a unique selling point. Honestly, yeah. I don't know. All maybe right. I, I can I can have a big banner across the front of my booth. The colorblind photographer, come on in. That might be. Too <laughs> Did he far. trick you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm really curious to hear about this one. Um, tell us about your quote unquote "Does my art suck?" test. Oh. Oh, okay. So this goes back to the idea when you're first starting out and trying to do art shows and sell your your photography. Um, and this applies to anybody who's doing any type of art. Uh, and this piece of advice comes from the, the art marketing podcast. They're, they're, they make whatever photo websites or websites for artists. Um, uh, the guy who talked about this, he, he has this idea is, uh, does, your, does your artwork suck test? And is, did you sell it to somebody who's not a friend and not a family member? And because it gets past that um, guilt buying, oh, you know, let's help out the little guy who's trying really hard. And, and you know, they buy a couple of things out of you out of pity. And, and if you're still in that and then you want to go off and try to start doing art shows seriously, like if you're not past that, you haven't passed the art does my art suck test. And it's surprisingly crucial because I see people who come to these art shows and they have photos that I personally don't think would sell. And I talk to them and their photos don't sell. And it's because they haven't passed does my art suck test. And they've got to start small in some fashion. And they've just got to find a very small area and test out a few of their pictures. Test it with anybody and everybody who's not in any way related emotionally connected to you. Because if they can emotionally connect with the art and then be willing to trade money for it, then you're on to something. But if you're not there, you're not up to snuff for the for the for the world buying, for the for the market and generally speaking. And maybe that's a, a snobbish way of doing things and I might, you know, push out some art, some artists, but I I can guarantee you if you can pass that test and you can do it consistently, you're going to make it. So and it sounds like that's the test you apply to your own work when you're trying to figure out what's going to sell in your booth too. Yep. So right. I, I will, I have my own personal taste of the photos that I think will, will do well. And then, and then I put it and out then you're there. Always, and then you're always wrong, right? 
Uh, sometimes it do so well, and then it doesn't sell a uh -huh. single one. <laughs> uh huh. And then it doesn't come in the booth. I have photos that I really like that are not in my booth because they don't sell. And so they, I put them out there, and that photo didn't pass the "Does my art suck?" test. And like, I have two photos that came out of uh, Snow Canyon. They're they're not like phenomenal photos, but they're decent photos. And the first photo took four to six months to sell. And the second one took, it just sold this past weekend. That was two years after printing. Yeah. And I, I printed it and it's been sitting in my eyebrows. I will never print it again. And because it did not pass the, does my art suck test. And so, you know, it did sell and it, it, you'd be surprised. People will buy just about anything over time. If there's just enough of, you know, there's a variety of people who will buy something. There's, there's a little bit of a flavor for everybody. That's the beauty of humanity is that we're all a little bit different. And so there is some aspect about somebody who will buy something, but oh, yeah. you will have photos that sit in your art booth for six or eight or 10 or 12 months. And you have to remember, you know, once those are gone, they are never coming back. And so I mean, like, and let's be clear, if your art does suck, there's probably still somebody that will buy it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Yep. I mean, that's been my experience. I mean, I, I had some horrible images when I was first starting out that people bought that were not my friends, they were not my family members, and I look back at those images and they're total trash, and someone bought them, so. <laughs> but it know. gave you the confidence, though, did it not? Right. Yeah, right. so I'm yeah. just I'm just trying to poke holes in your theory a little bit. Oh uh, no, you can you can try, but it's it's a it's a fairly good little foundational thing. I like being challenged a little. <laughs> no, I think it's a good starting point for sure. You know, uh -huh. it's uh, especially if you're going to do something like at an art fair, you know, yeah. I think, or, you know, like I think the true uh, value of what you're saying here is don't make the mistake of dropping thousands of dollars on printing work really big. If you don't know if it will sell. Yes. You're, if you're just starting off, really, the size you should be printing is 20 by 30. Nothing bigger. Even 20 by 30 big, is, really. yeah, but the 20 by 30 is the, is the most universal size. Once you get above 20 by 30, you're starting to have to be a little bit more specific where they go. And, you know, so help me, don't, if you're just starting off and you print a 40 by 60, you will probably lose money right off the bat. Um, it, unless you're phenomenal. Um, but your 20 by 30 is your most universal size because the, the price point to size ratio is really in your favor. Um, cause usually 20 by thirties don't sell for too much. Mind you, I do see photographers who sell 20 by thirties, I think for way more than they're worth. Um, but you know, that's the subjective part of art. So I'll let them do what they do. Uh, but that, that size works out really well for metal prints or, you know, canvas, whatever you want to uh, say. Um, and it, it, you can put a chunk of them on a wall and you can start with something like four or five and it'll fill a wall, still look good. And then when you sell it, you'll be able to make enough to replace it and get another one. And so if, if you're starting off, um, you don't have to have a huge, gigantic booth. You just need a couple decent size photos and some good selection of small paper prints and call it a day and then build up from there. I know we weren't planning on talking about this, but something you said earlier sparked my interest and as someone who does art fairs, I was curious to hear you talk a little bit about your personal approach and philosophy to limited editions or, or not limited editions. I I know I've been vocal about where I've landed here on the show before, where which is I don't do limited editions at all, um, mm -hmm. but that has more to do with my personal ethics around egalitarianism and hoping that even people who don't make a ton of money can find my art approachable. 
Yeah. And because I think that limited editions is kind of a marketing gimmick, but that's me. So what's your, what, what do you think? <laughs> uh, limited editions is there's a couple values to it. Um, at a, at a kind of utilitarian level, you get tired of seeing your own photos. And so once <laughs> you hit true. your own edition, you're, you can, you know, clap your hands, knock the dust off of it and say, I can, you know, rest my case in that photo and never see it again. Um, even though you love it, you'll have like maybe one in your own house for time's sake. Uh, yeah. so there, there is that aspect to, to limited editions. Um, people do care. And so having it does matter a little. Um, you mean in the art fairs? Yeah. Even at the art fairs. Uh huh. That's what I and mean. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So some people will ask and they're ask if it's limited. And, and, and so I, I've been looking to drop my, my limit to 25 and I'd limit that 12 by 18 and, and bigger. That's all a part of that 25 edition. Um, uh, but a lot of my older stuff is on that 50 edition. Um, so there, there is some value because it, it does help um, set your work apart a little, but it doesn't mean you have to charge to the nose, right? Um, you don't have to, to Peter Lick it and have, you know, your, your 10,000, your 20,000, your 75,000 and your $150,000 price scale based on whatever edition that it's in. Um, that is totally up onto the individual. So like at the end of the day, if he wants to do that, be my guess, he can do that. And that's how he makes a living. Right. Um, and so if you're gonna, I, I find there, you should have a limited edition, I think, whatever, uh, <laughs> I think you should do it a, cause it, it keeps your own stuff fresh. And, um, it does satisfy a need for individuals who do like that, uh, that, that desire for having the work to be limited edition. Cause they don't want it to see it everywhere. Um, you know, people who, who come to our shows, um, they come from a whole spectrum of backgrounds. So, so depending on where they come from, they could be like that really rich lady who came by and who bought one of my little 20 by 30, by, 20 by 30 prints. And I walked into her house and the whole thing was white marble and she had stone columns all over the place. And she was going to go right there in the corner of her house to the, to the, the old retired guy who bought my photo that sits in his living room above his door. So like, you get that whole variety of people and because you hit that whole variety of people, you should have some aspect to kind of cater to that. And so having some limited edition caters towards the high end, but not having to price out your market just because you're limited edition doesn't mean you need to be, you know, Oh yeah, this, this 20 by 30 is a $15,000 version compared to the, the one that I sold beforehand because it hit the next upper price packet. Uh, and so it really kind of comes down to the person. And so I find, um, I do find that there's that value in it, but at the end of the day, like I don't hang my hat on it for existence. It's, it's something that's, it's a, it's a tool, right? And I, it's just part of the it tool is. set. And so I guess for me, it's hard for me to, uh, like if I was in an art booth, while my, like selling my stuff mm -hmm. and someone was like, well, how come your limited edition is so much more money or whatever? It'd be really hard for me to like with a straight face believe in what i'm trying to say to them like oh yeah i can see that uh-huh you know what i mean and, it's like this is uh -huh. a completely re reproducible medium mm -hmm. and so all of this uh scarcity is artificial yeah and it's only it's only created to for the sole purpose of scarcity and for selling for things for more money and so like that's yep. why i would just have a really hard time selling that idea to somebody with a yeah face. i can see that and i don't and, and right now i personally don't have a, a price bracket based on my edition um and so it's just out of you know once i hit that 50 or 25 the photo's gone that you you it's come and gone and that that your chance of buying that photo is you know set aside and 
move on to something else. So I, that's how I see it. And it makes it, it, it makes it nice to actually like feel like as, especially as you see a photo work its way through an edition, it kind of feels like you're accomplishing something. You're like, wow, that photo went off and did that. That's really impressive. Like the other day I mentioned um, like Mesa Arch, you, you, every photographer has mixed emotions about Mesa Arch uh, on a, on a, you know, on a compositional slash like creative level. Mesa Arch does all the work for you. You show up, you put the tripod this- down, and <laughs> yeah, it, that's what makes Mesa Arch so phenomenal, what it does, because it cheats for you. It does all the compositioning for you. It does everything for you. All you have to do is show up and pray that the sun can pop up above the horizon. And it's not blocked by clouds. And yeah. then it does the rest. And as long as it's, you. you it know, is true. <laughs> it's true. Like you've been there once now. And once you do it, it's you're like, oh, wow. That's why it's so famous, because it I, oh, I just exposed I mean, and it was easy. Let's be clear, though. I mean, it is a pretty beautiful Scene. It's super beautiful. It's super I mean, beautiful. Uh, there's a reason why it's iconic. I mean, it's uh-huh. stunning. And, it, you know, if it weren't for all the people sitting around you, that would be one of the most amazing moments of your life. Uh-huh. You uh, <laughs> but my Mesa Arch photo recently has been doing really, really well. And like I was saying, uh, it's been the most profitable image I've ever done. But most of that's because of the size it's frequently sold at. But should I hate it? Because... It's, you know, yeah. iconic and kind of cliche at this point. No, but once it sells to that edition, I will be glad that it did that. And I can close the book on that photo, you know, close the, the, the chapter or the, the book on that photo. And I can say that photo did exactely what I wanted to do. It helped fund my photography business. It helped fund me going other places. And then I can just say goodbye. Thank you so much for what you've done. And that edition's closed out and I can walk away from that photo. Happy. Boom. I love what you just said. It's because it's. Yeah. You're very pragmatic and honest about what that photo is for you. Like Mm -hmm. it's paying the bills. (laughs) Yeah, it's paying the bills. And you know what? It looks good. And no matter how much I kind of want to hate it, I still love it. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I have the exact same attitude towards my Mace Arch photo. Like, is it technically sound? Yes. Is it beautiful? Yes. Like with somebody who bought it should they be happy with the purchase totally but as a as somebody who wants my photography to be more personally connective and meaningful and all of that that image represents none of that right mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's for me where it's like a big disconnect in terms of like you know it's like i don't know like are you super proud of the your ikea couch that you quote unquote <laughs> built or are you proud of the really janky um table that you built with you know just on your own with no plans you just made it you know what i mean like yeah probably the second one i'm guessing but you know what i mean unless it was a really hard ikea couch right like oh i, <laughs> I conquered that yeah <laughs> yeah actually um funny story there's actually a lot of psychological research about ikea and yes how- yes i have heard about this that's why people actually value their Ikea furniture more because they had to build it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's still, I think the the metaphor stands. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, but yeah, I, the, in the end of the day, I think photographers should put their things in limited edition, but they shouldn't, uh, you know, now I get on my soapbox. So they shouldn't, you know, hold that to some sort of a higher moral standard that sets you apart from somebody else that you're, five limited edition versus 25 limited edition versus, you know, a hundred or 200. 
Um, it's just, it's the end of the day. What are you trying to accomplish? Like if you're at a gallery where you're selling, you know, $30,000 prints or $50,000 prints, you should probably have that thing be limited to five or 10 because the people who are buying that, dang it, they don't want that photo on, you know, 40 people's walls. But if you're not concerned with that, don't worry about it. And I find some, I find myself somewhere in the middle. I don't like having, I don't want to sit there and print that photo 200 times. But I can all be okay with printing it 25 or 50 times. At the end of the day, it's all strategy, right? Yep, it's strategy at the end of the day. Yep. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest and, about that one. And me, I have to feel comfortable with my strategy from a, uh-huh. you know, ethical, moral, also like just selling the idea to somebody, mm-hmm. you know, like you I have can to sell, sell yourself first. Because yeah, if you I don't can... feel like your stuff is not, you know, a limited edition, like... Why in the world would you put this artificial restraint on yourself? Yeah, I mean, I can sell somebody on buying a $3,000 print that costs me, you know, 1600 to just print it. Mm-hmm. But it'd be really hard for me to convince somebody to do the same thing that costs me $1,600 and then I'm charging them 100000 right? Yep. That would be harder, harder to do. Yep. And that's, you know, and that's where I feel like I see a lot of photographers these days who, who I see their price that they do sell their prints at. And I look at their price and the size. I'm like, it's at, it's mismatch, right? I know how much those photos cost to make and the price that you're selling at. And then, and I don't even know if they have a limited edition or not. They, they say it, but I don't usually see it on their website easily. And I, I honestly see a lot of photographers who, I, who overprice photos quite a lot because they, they put a higher value on it. And then I think they partly, partially do it because it's a pain in the butt for them to go out of their way to print it. So they better make sure it's worth their time. And so they, they do that simply as almost like a deterrent rather than a strategy. Um, and I purposely price larger prints, uh, more affordable per square inch, mostly because it's the, I'm going to make more money and it's more worth my time. Um, yep. so totally like that's my mindset. I, th- I was thinking the opposite. I see people, selling 24 by 36 metal prints for like $200. I'm like, dude, you just made like 20 bucks or whatever. Oh yeah. Know? Yeah. If they, if they're, yeah, if they're selling it like that, they're, they're doing it cause they don't understand um, how to actually make a living off their photography. If they're doing that and they're only selling and making a profit margin of 20 bucks, they are wasting their time. I, I will exactly. hands down. If I see that and I, I know cause 20 by thirties or 24 by 36 metal prints across the board, after you look around long enough, it's only a 20 or $30 difference between the higher end to the lower end guys, unless you start hitting acrylic and then it just gets absurd really quick what the little add-ons you could do to make it fancy. And, and yeah, if, if they are that low, they're just, they don't know the value of their own work yet. Agreed. All right. And, well, I want to, Oh no, go ahead. Uh, sorry. I, I want to make a comment at the whole value value of your own work. Uh, I, I do, I, you know, I, I, I say this, that I see photographers over overvaluing, valuing their work, but at the end of the day, you do have to put value to your stuff. And, and so I've had people come by my art booths who says, Oh, I like a good deal. I want two of those at half off. And I was like, are you, excuse me, <laughs> you just because, and I, you have to be able to tell people no, because you have to be able to value your own work. And I've had people show up and they're like, I got $300 right here in cash. Give me that huge print. And I'm like, that photo costs more than $300 for me to make. So no, you can keep walking. 
Yeah. And so like That's making sure you can stand up for your own value is an important thing that you have to be able to accept it while you're doing art shows and accept it as yourself as a photographer. Cause that's that whole thing that happened on Instagram, you know, Oh, can you do this and share it? And we'll give you exposure. Like, no, that, that was photography losing its value. One, you know, exposure sharing thing at a time. Yeah. And I don't know if this resonates for you at all, but if some, like if, we're giving our work away for free or for a very small cost. That's a personal decision. But at the end of the day, it also impacts your your peers, right? Yep. Because you're basically devaluing everything that everyone else is doing too. Yep. I think. Uh, yeah, it does. Sean, uh, you know who Sean Parker is down there in uh, Arizona? Yeah. Yeah, so Sean someone? Parker had a had a really good example where he had this epic shot of like lightning or something out there over Tucson and the Weather Channel reached out to him and they're like, hey, man, we don't have, you know, a ton of budget, but can we share this stuff for yeah. your exposure? And he's like, you're the Weather Channel. You have a channel on cable. You know, you have, you know, tens of millions of dollars in your budget and to, to call out that you say you don't have enough budget. To, to pay for my work that you're going to then share to your tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers. Like, no, like yeah, you have to joke. be able to stand up for your work. And I've had to do that a couple times. Um, another person from weather channel reached out to me over a little video. They're like, Hey man, well, you know, can we use this? I'm like, I know you have money. You're just scraping the internet so you can get free media. And that's your job is to scrape the internet for free media. Like if you went to Google or not to Google to Adobe video, you would have paid for this, right? But you went to Instagram because you knew people would be desperate. Yep, yep. I think we, and it's hard, right? Like it's hard to tell people like, don't give away your work for free. And I've seen the other side of that argument too. But I think at the end of the day, it is important to at least value it, at least something, you know? Yep, Um, you should value it at least something. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, man. I wanted to ask you one more question. Really, it was really, I've been meaning to ask you this for a while, actually, Nathan. Um, sure. So, so you're a biologist by training. Yep. I'm really curious to hear about how that training and your educational background has given you an advantage as a photographer, or how it has changed the way you approach photography. Um. Well, it makes me walk around and look at rivers everywhere and realize that most of them are damaged. Um. Mm. So, <laughs> so it's turned you into a, a cynic. Awesome. A little bit, you know. I um, that's okay though. That's 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 fair. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And and I think the 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 biology training um, it definitely makes me to to probably approach photography. That when you're learning photography, the whole like the photo triangle, the exposure that really helps when you have a good understanding and a solid foundation of of methodology. Because once you really dial in certain aspects of photography, it's fairly, you know, the methodology is essentially the same, you know, okay, I'm high enough, I'm far away from this F11 or like F13 exposure is this, I have a general idea what I'm going to need to do. Uh, Let me do a three, three exposure bracket, we'll call it a day. And, you know, that that's the method. And so a lot of photography and science when it comes to that crossover is that is that methodology that you kind of dial in. Um, One thing it does, what um, the science really taught me to do is ask a lot of questions. Um, you know, I, I, so I got unemployed for a bit and that was a good training time. So I, I had just finished up a, a season and over the, the, the winter I did a lot of photography. 
And after I finish a photo or after I finish a photo shoot, I go back and I'm like, okay, what didn't, what didn't work? And I, I am, uh, my personality from all that training through, through sciences has really caused me to ask a lot of questions. And it probably makes me a total um, annoying person sometimes because you've seen this on Facebook. Sometimes I'll call people and ask them like, hey, what about X? Right. Because that's just part of who I am. And uh, the science side of that the training has really caused me to constantly ask, um, what could I do to improve? Um, what method did I use this time that I could do to better on the next go around? Um, it doesn't mean I'm perfect at following through on that. Uh, but the, the, that's what the science training does. Uh, as the biology training, it really has made me a lot of a cynic. <laughs> I really deep down inside, I, it, you know, I go anywhere. I, I finally, for the first time when I went to Canyonlands, a section of Canyonlands this year, as I think back on how the, the landscape is structured there, that's the first time I've ever seen a landscape that probably has never had cows on it ever. Oh, and God. I can tell it took me about half an hour driving through the park to realize that something was different here. And after another 20 minutes of looking at it, I'm like, oh, there's crypto soil everywhere. Everything, every square inch of the ground and the landscape in all directions, as far as the eye can see, is all crypto soil, which means cows have never been here. And then we got to a section of the park that cows had definitely been into. All of it disappeared. Invasive grasses everywhere. I'm like, oh, okay. Yep, check. That's I see how this functions. So my biology training has made me um, aware of the damage that's in the landscapes. Uh, and I look around and I see a lot of it, but... Uh, how it dramatically influences me, I don't know yet. And maybe I'll learn as I go along. I love that. And I love that you also <clears throat> talk about cattle because that's like my my friend Kane loves to make fun of me. But every time we go camping somewhere, like I'm always complaining about cattle because of how destructive they are to the environment, not only to the soil, but also to the water. Um, because all that cow shit gets into the water system and yep. basically kills off all the life that's supposed to be there. Um, changes and then it. It, I, yeah. it changes it. And then yeah. the other thing that cattle does that people probably don't realize is like, it really makes it hard to be a defender of like leave no trace as humans. When we have a whole entire government agency, the BLM, who basically lets ranchers just send their cattle out to do way more destruction than we could ever do as photographers, right? Like, so it's really hard to tout that horn of leave no trace when, you know, we're anyway, like I could talk about cattle for like six hours. Yeah, cattle, cattle have um, a lot of mixed feelings with me, mostly bad. There's like 10% good, 90% bad. Um, mostly because a lot of your small towns out here essentially only live and exist because of cattle. And I understand that they, they need it because, you know, they have to make a living too, but, Oh, I, I, you probably have never done this, but I have been waist deep in cow water plenty of times catching fish in places that smell like cow pee. I have been there and I have done that. I have been knee deep and all sorts of gross water places catching fish uh, where there's like gross cow pee coming off the, 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 the banks. And you're like, oh, I'm shocking fish out. I really don't want to touch this water. I'm really glad I'm wearing waders today. I, I have been there and done lots of that. Um, and I've also been grateful for cows. So one of my projects that I'm working on is hiking the Escalante River drainage. I hate the fact that cows occasionally sneak in there. But cows are really, really good at pushing through willows and making channels. And when you're when you're 15 <laughs> miles down a river and there are no more trails anymore and you're only really trails of these old cow tracks, you kind of appreciate the cow. 
but at the same time, <laughs> the cow caused those cow tracks. So I, I have I have lots of bad things to say about cows. I don't know if this is exactly the right podcast to to talk about cows, but I could oh I could go on about cows. Well, we could probably do that over beer sometime because I there's a specific nonprofit that I support called the Western Watershed Project, mm-hmm. um, and their their sole purpose is to buy cattle ranchers uh, basically their their land allotments and BLM land so that they can't graze cattle there. Like, oh wow! Yes, sign me up. More of that. <laughs> I'd give them all of my money if I could. <laughs> Just get the cows out. You got to do it and to sheep, are, too. You know, oh, absolutely. Sheep are bad so. for sure. Yeah. All right, man. Well, let's wrap this up. Who would you recommend for the podcast? Okay. Um, so I first was going to recommend Nick Stover. He's a photographer out there in uh, California. I think Nick is probably one of the most generous photographers I've ever met, mostly because I bumped into him out by Lake Powell way the heck out of the way. And he got my phone number and we just been staying in touch. And because of him, I've been able to meet a whole lot of other photographers. Uh, and he's, uh, he's a super nice guy and he's, he's just starting to get into the, the, the art marketing world and, and getting into selling at art shows. And I've been giving him advice along the way. Um, Jeff, Jeff Peterson, um, he, he's up, but he just moved up to Wyoming. Uh, he was the best person I've ever had next to me at art shows because he's the reason why I have a decent looking booth because his success made me fail. And because I failed, it made me want to be better. And so Jeff was the best competition I ever had. And I desperately wish him back here sometimes because uh, a, he's good company to have around to talk to. And B, when you have super, other photographers, super good dude. yeah, super he was good super dude. good dude. And when you have other photographers who have better displays than you do, it makes you want to be better. And so he was my last big competition down here in Southern Utah. So now I don't, I'm now I'm the, the weird top fish. And so I need somebody else to show back up so I can have a reason to keep fighting to be better. And then uh, uh, I want to listen to Marcel Van Oosten. He's a guy who, who I'm, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. Uh, he is a photographer that like, I feel like changed my perspective on how wildlife photography is done because he does a lot of com- uh, combining landscapes into it. And he has a, a, a shot of an elephant next to Victoria falls in Africa that hands down is one of the best shots ever created by mankind. So, uh, if I would love to listen to that man, talk about his, his methodology and his madness to what he does. Oh, all right. I love that. Well, he's Nathan St. Andre, St. Andre. I got Saint it right. Andre. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks for thanks for spending the time with us today, man. Yeah, thank you. Of course. All right. Well, thanks to Nathan for a great chat on the podcast today. If you enjoyed our conversation and want to hear more, head over to Patreon to hear us continue the chat on print sales and art shows. We both share some tips for how we have found success with selling prints, and I think you can learn something if that's of interest to you. I also encourage you to swing over to the show notes to take a look at Nathan's great photographs. As always, the show notes are on my blog, on my website, at mattpainphotography.com. One more thing before we part ways, I'm always looking to make more connections out there in the community that are mutually beneficial. If you have an idea, please don't hesitate to reach out and chat with me. Cheers. That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.